and eventually you just end up with this sort of, you know, they're, they're just pirates, mercenaries, people just from job to job, you know, do a month here and then go, no, no, I can go and get 85k somewhere else and do, and do 40 hours a week. This is the Life on the Past podcast, exploring the journeys, stories and personalities of Australia's best chefs. Whether you're a veteran of the industry, an aspiring chef, or someone who wants a deeper understanding of what goes on behind the scenes of your favourite restaurants, this podcast is for you. Brought to you by Hunter Street Hospitality, I'm Jeremy Vanek. In this episode, I chat with Andy Evans, Executive Chef of Spice Temple. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. Thank you very much for Tuesday afternoon. It's lovely. Tell me about uh, your role at the moment. Uh, my role at the moment has changed for, for over the last sort of 14 years. It, I started at Spice in 2009 with Neil, when Neil had uh, the entire business with Rockpool Bar and Grills and, and the Rosettas and everything else. So we had started from a pretty much scratch. It was an original idea, and it's now grown into... Uh, two restaurants, one here and one in, in Melbourne. So I'm looking after both of those at the moment. Melbourne's a bit of a challenge. It went through some pretty hard times over COVID. A lot of people left the state and decided not to become, not to be chefs and hospitality and waiters and bartenders and anything anymore. And it's been really hard to get them all back, but now they're starting to come back, which has been great. So now it's just trying to split my time between here and in Sydney and then Melbourne once a month. So And so you've obviously got strong... Um Head chefs under you? Yeah, I got two. I, uh, the one in Melbourne, Maggie, she's fantastic. She's from Hong Kong. She's a really young girl. She stepped up to the, to the plate uh, about a year or about a year ago. Uh, and she was really nervous about taking on the job, but she's done a really fantastic uh, with not very much because <laughs> she's uh, yeah. There's the staff in Melbourne are pretty lean, so we're we're getting better. It's it's getting a lot better, and the same as in Sydney as well. But uh, the guys in, in in Sydney are fantastic. I've had the same. Two I see for how long was he there? Mark, he was there for about 11 years. I've got Roma, a guy, he's probably been there about the same time. Another girl who's two I see there is Sarah Kim. She's probably been there 70s or not 70s. She's uh. been there seven, seven years. <laughs> she's, there is a seven, she's, I think she's 65. She's the master maker. Uh, or those Foglina, whatever you call it. Yeah, right. Know, in, in Rosetta in Melbourne. She's pretty amazing. Yeah, cool. Still busting it out. And so even even for a restaurant as established and prestigious as Spice Temple, you were still finding it difficult during COVID with staffing? We we were really, really lucky because Spice is a really regional Chinese restaurant, so you really can't get what we do um, at home or around the corner. Yeah. So a lot of our stuff is not, not our protein and all that sort of stuff, but a lot of the sauces and, and the specialty ingredients, they're all specifically bought in just for us. So we arranged in 2008 with a supplier in Melbourne called Oxico and a few others that are around to – specifically get these products in just for us. Yeah, right. And it was a real ball ache to get it all in because... To import them into Australia? Yeah, yeah. To, but but not the really, not the sort of um, generic stuff. We wanted to get the really, really good gear. So yeah. to get it in, it was really hard with Aquis because, you know, quarantine is really, really tough in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and particularly with anything coming in from China, their really re- defence force and lots of stuff are really tight on it. Yeah, okay. Like everything gets ripped apart yep. to just to find if there's any heroin or whatever else that's in, inside it. People... God knows whatever else in a shipping container that you're going to find coming from China. But, yeah, it's, it's tough. It, it was tough. But we, we did really well out of it because during that stage we went through Providor yep. and we set up through Providor, which is really unfortunate that it that it failed. But we, we managed to sort of have, I don't know, fill a need that everyone needed to have. We were, they were shipping stuff to oh, all sorts of places like Burke, Tari, all sorts of other places really out, out there. So people in really regional places were getting spice table for the first time yep. without having to travel. Yeah. So we were packed like every single day. You'd have we'd have the whole full team of the chefs would come in. So we didn't lose anybody. We'd have the whole full team of the floor come in. Yeah, we were that busy that we had other restaurants and all the rest of it that we were going. Well, bring come on in. We'll you know we'll give you a job part time or it's casual or whatever else. Yeah, right. 
it was getting to the stage, yeah, you're doing like three to 500 boxes of food every single day. Crazy. And it's just monumental amount of food. And But there was, the great thing about it, the bar and grill was still really, really busy as well. And the great thing about it was, because we were really busy, that we had this fantastic relationship with suppliers that meant that whatever they were holding on to that they couldn't sell because they had bought it all for whatever it was, olive cheese, you know, whatever it was. We were just like, we'd be ringing around every single supplier saying, what have you got? Because you just forget that, you know, lambs and chickens and pigs and all that stuff don't stop growing. So yep. they've got to get rid of them somehow. Yeah. So you'd be on the phone every Sunday for an hour and a half. What's, what do you want to get rid of? What do you need to get rid of? Yeah, cool, no worries. I've got six pigs coming in this week and 20 lamb and something like this and 30 barrels of olive oil, which I'm going to try and use for something and, and you could you could go through that amount. Yeah, we were just but basically we were working with Corey and, and and the other guys just basically sort of say like whatever we can get, you know, we'll, let's help out all the suppliers as, as best we can and and, so and staff. So you butcher on site? Yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big thing about spicy tea that we've we don't buy anything pre-made or pre pre-cut. Yeah, right. So everything's cut on site. So and that's two things where you, you guarantee the 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 quality of what you've got coming in, and two to, to make sure that the skill isn't lost on. For sure. On everybody. And so what are we talking here, pigs? Oh, we used to get pigs in uh, now uh, in whole, but yeah. just for OHNS now, they're, they're kind of a little bit frowned on getting whole pigs in and busted up because delivery guys are generally a little bit leaner than they used to be. I don't know what they used to have back in the days where they had some giant Samoan who used to carry 14 <laughs> lambs on his on his shoulders, but now it's just you'd, you'd get them split now. So you get the head off and you get them split down the middle. So Is this too heavy for the drivers? Just for the middle, a bit heavy for the drivers, yeah. Really? And it's just you know, where we are at Spicy Tea, we're in the in a heritage building. We've got a really shitty loading dock with 2.1 high, so you can't have vans and stuff to go through yeah. there. So there's all these guys that are carrying stuff. So generally it's split into four, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. And the guys still get amongst it and still learn how to bone out shoulders and so, so I was going to ask, do you expect your team to kind of have those skills coming in or do you, t- do you tre- teach and train them? It's a reward, yeah. Basically, to say, listen, look, if you want to stay here and, and learn yeah. and be here every day and lots of stuff, then you can learn how to cut fish, you can learn how to cut meat and all this sort of stuff really, really well and that's down the track. And, you know, if you're great at it, then you move upstairs and you go and work with a butcher upstairs for a couple of days of the week, which is fantastic, which is really good. And so tell me about your journey with... um. With the company? Uh, wow. Started in 94, um, really long time ago with Neil, uh, really back at, at Rockpool when Rockpool was on George Street at 107 George Street. It was it was amazing. And that was your first, was your first or your second cooking? First real, real, first real gig. I had my first dishwashing job. My, my older brother had given me a, at a place called Nachos in Thornley on the North Shore. Yeah, right. And it was a, it was a pretty terrible place. It was full of just frozen meat and and nachos, and, but it was it was loose, and it was really really funny to work with because you got exposed to sort of see that that side of the hospitality. It was quite funny, and just the people that were in there, and it's it, it's pretty crazy. And then just did a little bit of little bit of work through high school, and then got a job at a couple other places at a golf club, and then I just hated the golf club. Yeah, got yeah the opportunity to knock on the door, and yeah, went in Vinnie's, bought a suit, went for went for an interview, and likely like you know got it in the end and, and then yeah started there and on my 19th birthday in in 94 how long had he been open for he was 89 so yeah, about right. four about four years and was it already big name yeah it was massive it yeah. was massive i didn't realize how, how how massive it was when you you stick it on your resume and it's just like people opening doors yeah everywhere. totally everywhere you go it's like where do you work oh Rob, I'm like, wow, my yeah. God. wherever you went and then i think a few years after that that's when they won i think number five in restaurant magazine and then sort of I left there in just before oh, 2001, I think I finished up there. Okay. But yeah, it was, it was, it's an amazing place. Tiny, tiny, tiny kitchen, really, really small, no, no gadgets, 
No really wacky machinery in all of us of it. Stovetop oven. That's it. Yep. They had a really shitty old barbecue with, it was all gas. There was no fire or anything back then. Two six burner stoves, a really tiny fish section, a tiny pasta section. And that was like 10 or 12 different doughs every day. Yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah, like, and then a tiny little ladder section, a little pastry section. And then downstairs was sort of only four and a half feet high because it's in, in the rocks. It's in all in the heritage area. Yeah, okay. Can't move anything. So to get to all your deliveries, they would come down through the front of the restaurant, through a hatch, then down the hatch, and then into the into the cool room. It was not set up well, but like for the quality food that came out of that place, it was just incredible. And what was the team size? There was probably two, four, six, maybe twelve in the kitchen at any one time on a, on a busy night. Sometimes like thirteen or fourteen. Crazy. If you had a really big one, and you'd be just like this packed together, but. Like just chopping board size. Yeah, yeah. Like, but then as soon as you sort of you, that would be prep, and then and then you you finish down prep, and then get ready to go for service time, and then you'd be receiving it ready to go, and then Khan would be there or Neil or whoever else is going to be calling the pass, and then calling out everything in the docket rail, and you're just standing there just listening all the time, just like <clears throat> for what because you can't really read the dockets or anything else like that. You're not not supposed to. You're just listening, listening all the time, just going, yeah, what's next? What's next? And every single dish has got like ten different things in it. So yeah, it's right. two of you going like this to get it all up an amazing hot and then it goes to the pass and then some clown hopefully takes it to the right place <laughs> without <laughs> dropping it or whatever else. Yeah. But they had, at, at the time, they had some amazing people on the floor as well. Yeah. Really, really amazing people on the floor. It was just, it wasn't a job. Yeah. It's a career for career. these guys at, at, that, at that stage. Yeah, right. It was amazing. And do you think it's not like that now? I think people see the downside of after COVID, yeah. definitely. You mean you mean front of house or? Uh, both. Okay. I think they've seen the vulnerability of of hospitality in that sort of sense. I can't see it happening again, but look, hey, the amount of people that are allowed to work, that's probably the hardest is that people are allowed to work from home in other jobs and professions at the moment. So people look at that in hospitality and go, oh, really, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? A couple of days a week working from home, yep. you know. <clears throat> but it's kind of those people that don't want to be in the kitchen and want to work from home that maybe yeah, it's lost. <laughs> yeah, it's true, it's true. And, and, and you kind of go, okay, well, maybe it's good to weed them out. And say, look, you know, yeah, that's great. You can go and do that. Work from home. Don't work. But the problem is, is that you, you're you're gathering more people that are from overseas mm. than the, to coming into working into your restaurants, which I love. But some other people go, oh, you know, we should be buying, you know, jobs for Australians and lots of stuff. And I'm like, I keep saying to them, mate, they're, they're not knocking on the door. Yeah, yeah. To to, to get a job. <clears throat> I guess it's just where they're coming from and what what experience they've got and what they're what they're in for. Yeah, totally. So a lot of the um, international guys have come over for for a visa, and I I totally understand that because yeah. where they're coming from, Australia is an amazing place to 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 finish up. So, and a lot of them are amazing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like probably eighty percent of the guys that come through have either stuck around for not just their six months of their working holiday visa, but for a couple of years. Yeah, and if they haven't moved on from Spice, they've gone to Bar and Grill or maybe moved towns and gone down to Melbourne or something else like that. So you really try and keep them in a nice little tight little, little net work yeah. of people that you've got. Even in Sydney, you've got a select group of other chefs that you work with and say, listen, I've got this really good guy. He's had enough of Asian. He wants to go and do something different. Yeah, You want to give him a go? Yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah. And it kind of works really well at that. Um, but I think that, and yeah. it's typical, right? They, they, they give you someone back. You hope so. Yeah. It, got a little bit, it got a little bit competitive when... You know, when we first opened up with COVID, because it was just there was just no staff. Yeah. Um, and you just purely needed bodies and legs, and even even they went around. So you just people were offering ridiculous sums of money for a four day working week, and yeah, and people would take it. And it was <laughs> and, and, and eventually you just end up with this sort of, you know, they're, they're just pirates, mercenaries. People just from job to job. You know, do a month here and then go. No, no, I can go and get eighty five k somewhere else and do you know forty hours a week. That's yeah, like, that's not what it's all about. No. 
but someone pointed out to me recently that, that you know when the recession hits and when places are going to have to start losing staff because they're not going to be able to afford to pay, you know, who's the first to go? It's the yeah. casual, casual totally. chef on 100K a year, you know? Yep. So it kind of works both ways. It does. It does. And it, people are seeing that now. Yeah. So now they're coming back to Spicy Tea and Bar and Grill and all the other places where they go, oh, shit, I really should have stayed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I don't see that this training anywhere else in that I can get in Sydney. So yeah. I guess I'll just hope that there's a middle ground reach that it's not just straight back to, okay, well, now we've got a huge amount of chefs looking for jobs because mm. they're all being laid off. <clears throat> and now we can treat them as we used to, you know, that yeah. yes. there needs to be some kind of, okay, well, let's meet in the middle, you know, I'd, maybe yeah. maybe the employers or the restaurants did wrong at one stage, then yeah. the chefs took advantage, but let's not keep going back and forth like this. Let's say, okay, well, what's a fair amount for everybody? Yeah, and yeah. How do you, you know, but as um as I was saying before, we we're talking about with, with Shinpei that um, he thinks it's, when chefs used to be out of work 60 hours in a week, you know, for a 40-hour salary, mm. obviously people don't want that anymore and don't want to go back to that, but it did have its benefits of, you know, you could get four, 60 hours of training in somebody for a 40-hour salary, you know, mm. so you could then afford to, to do these small things like butchering meat, which a lot of places, they, they either don't have the space, but they probably don't have the, the time to be able mm. to pay people yep. to be able to, to, to do that, you mm. know. Um, and it's just, so I think there's a lot of skills lost in you know, more fair environments and more fair work. There needs to be some kind of a way yeah. to look at it and say, well, how do we get these people to train up, but mm. not necessarily, you know, have to pay them for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's definitely, but that's really kind of frowned on now because it's like, well, no, that's extra work. You're not getting paid. So I'm like, well, the guy wants to do it. There should be a way to volunteer. Yeah. But there should also be, you know, steps in place to make sure that what they're doing when they're volunteering is learning. That that's not, exactly true. It's not exploited and saying, okay, well, th let's say that you're learning, you do an hour in the butchery and then, come back down and do service for six hours. For yeah, free, yeah. You know, yeah. so maybe that's a way to look at it. There um, is. Yeah, I mean, there's some dodgy people out there. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. There's some really, really dodgy people out there who take the advantage of it. Just like you say, you know, they, all these kids are going to go for sponsorship and then they earn up, they turn up paying their own superannuation and half their own tax and all that sort of and, stuff. And, and for their sponsorship. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, seriously? Like, come on, man. Like, you're ruining it. For, you're really ruining it for everybody, painting everyone with the same brush. And then it's yeah. just like, okay, you know what? We'll all wear it at the end. Yeah. And now that's where we're at. But it's a much better um, sort of system now where it's basically, it's really heavily regulated now. Yeah. Really heavily regulated. And like if you can, looking back in 94 when you started and maybe the early 2000s around that time um, until now and maybe some side-by-side -side comparisons of, of certain things in the industry, you know. So working working hours and working times, mm. how are they kind of, how is it now compared to then? Well, before it was always, it was hard, you know, you're doing 60 hours a week and I was yeah. getting paid for 38, but that was, I chose to do that. You yeah. know, it was never someone standing over me going, you know, you have to be here and stuff. I chose to, if I could walk away at any, at any stage I wanted to, so, yeah. but I was like, no way, this is amazing. What you get out of that sort of restaurant is just incredible, you know what I mean? The people that you meet, the skills that you get out of it. I chose to stay and, and, and work in that sort of environment so I could go up up the ladder and yep. work a little, little bit higher and hopefully get to the stage where I eventually got was sous chef and it was amazing and, you know, and your skills at that stage are, you know, you don't want to blow your own trumpet, but they're pretty good. Yeah. So, but that only comes from doing things just with repetition, like day after day after day, learning how to cut whole lambs and then you get it, you know, you're cutting a whole lamb in 14 minutes kind of thing now. Yeah. Because it's just so easy and you can doing it blindfolded and all that, that sort of stuff. But it's now it's at 2001, it kind of really changed with the Olympics came around. I think... They had a the Olympics was amazing in Sydney. Okay, it um I think for three weeks I think we just worked. Everybody worked in the kitchen. I don't know how many hours it was like sixteen hours a day for three weeks. Crazy, but like it paid 
it paid so much money, put so much money into Neil's bank account yep. to pay for all the other stuff that was happening down at Wackpool, all the other stuff that was happening everywhere else. And then out of that came, you know, just jobs for everybody, all new equipment everywhere. It was, was Neil was just splashing out money, just left, right and centre going, new ovens, new stoves, new this, new that. And it was amazing. Yeah, and like it didn't go into his pocket and just sit there. It went and he spent it on awful lot of stuff, which is, which is pretty amazing. That's good. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, I'd say it's, I don't know. The work culture is probably a little bit different yep. than it was then, and definitely now. Yeah, and it was back then. I think um, people still do a lot more. Uh, I don't know. They expect a little bit more sort of money for for nothing. Yeah, okay. Than than they do now. But there's still a few hidden gems in there where people put their hand up and say, "Hey, listen, look." Because we're regional Chinese, people will turn up and say, "Hey, listen, look. I really love to learn." Yep. Um, can I come in for a day? And that must be nice because you are so specified and so mm. you know. It's lovely. You get you, you would learn the skills there, like butchery. I didn't know about that, but obviously, just the type of cooking that you're doing. Yeah, um, you're not going to learn that everywhere. No, no, and it's and that's the thing. So it's kind of like I really like the fact that we've got something else that no one else has. Yeah. So, how about guest expectation then and now? Oh, jeepers! Uh, regional Chinese restaurant opened up 2009. I think it was amazing when we first opened up. We didn't have a, we didn't have a liquor license when we first opened up. Yeah. Right. Um, and Neil was bl- Neil was blaming everyone under the sun, and also about the reality was he just put the application in way too late. I think it was in December or something else. Okay. Um, so we had our first, I think, about our first month of trading with no liquor license. So it was all BYO. Okay. So everybody loved us. Yeah. Everybody loved us. It was like there were people going, going. I've just spent sixty five dollars a head. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty reasonably priced. And you know, they're bringing in wine that everyone's tipping. There's cash flying everywhere, and it yep. was it was awesome. But uh, it's then it was pretty hard. But we were already new. But we were doing stuff that was really, it was really heavily researched. Okay. Because we went to uh, China in, in April of two thousand and eight, and we had um, really just sort of sucked the life out of every single town that we went to. Two lunches, two, two dinners every single day, like just really full on stuff, and really, really all the regional sort of stuff that we're we're famous for. Yeah. And then bringing all that back, and it was something that people had never had you know, quite kneel before, you know, it was brought to the kind of the main stage. And then it was amazing. People were just like, wow, this is amazing. It's really spicy, but it's not. Did you go as well? Yeah, yeah, we were all there. So it was myself, Neil, um, his PA, Sarah Swan. And then you had a friend over there called Rob McEwen, who was sort of a translating kind of guy. But it was an amazing trip. And where, where was your kind of favourite place? Beijing's amazing, but the, I, I couldn't get over the how, how dirty it, it was and, and the smog. and Really? Yeah, we come from Australia and it's just... Yeah. The sky is blue. Yeah. And even then when I go to Melbourne once a month now, I go, oh, yeah, Melbourne's got a little bit of smog here and there. Okay. But you go to Beijing and it's just essentially people, people running and they've just got masks on. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it was. And food-wise, where was the, is it the regions or is it the cities? Uh, bit of both. I think Shanghai was pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing because you got a lot of uh, sort of white culture that are coming through through all the finance. Okay. So you get a lot of those guys are coming through and they go, oh, you know, they've been working in particular parts of China somewhere and they've, then they come back to Shanghai and they go, oh, can you make this? And so you end up with a little, tiny little restaurants that just specialise in two or three things yeah. in Shanghai, which is pretty cool. Hong Kong was absolutely amazing. Yeah. You know, it's changed a little bit, I've heard, okay. um, with the with the big whip being sort of cracked, but it's Hong Kong is still an amazing food destination. I do like those places. Um I know in Europe and in Portugal, there's a lot. You go into a little restaurant, and they do literally one dish, mm. and they're known for that one dish. You yep. know, and you you don't go there unless you want that dish. But they do it extremely well, and yeah. they've done it for a long time. And I think there's I'm I'm happy to see restaurants moving away from massive massive menus 
and getting into smaller refined menus, but I do mm. I do like that kind of one trick pony element of of totally yeah you go there for the one thing and if you're going back to the to the country and you're there for work or for whatever reason and there's something that you know that is really really amazing you're gonna go make a beeline for it tomorrow it's like yeah. that's, all, that's all I need while I'm here I just need a, you know a shallot, yeah. a shallot cake from this particular place and on the Bund that's where I need and then you go and get it and you think oh, life is good yeah. So is it your favourite country to go to, do you reckon? Uh, wow, no. Uh, yes, and well, that's really hard with China. Yeah, okay. Really hard. It's such a massive country. Yeah. Um, when we were travelling there, that was the, the the Olympics. Yeah, okay. So our sort of our travel was a little bit restricted. Yeah. We couldn't go to see some places because they didn't want to see. Was it a lot busier? It was packed. Yeah. Absolutely I packed. mean, probably packed anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. It was bonkers, but the government was really cracking down on anything that didn't look great. Yeah. So, because f- there was so many foreign cameras around everywhere, so it was just like if you're <clears throat> all the poor people, not nah, see you later. Crazy how they do that. Yeah. Just wipe out the forbidden city and just go. You know what? No, I can't have that here anymore. It looks too gross. You went to South America some years ago. Yeah, with my wife. Well, well, it was with my wife then. We yeah, we had eight months in South America traveling around. And where'd you go there? Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, Argentina, cheapest Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru. Amazing place. Amazing place. Peru? Yeah. 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 I'd like yeah. I'd like to go there. You should do it. It's it's an it's an incredible place. It's it's a little bit sad. It's it's really kind of um I don't want to say poor, but yeah, it's been screwed over quite a, quite a lot by you know the 1% of people who take all the money and leave not much for everybody else, but it's uh naturally speaking it's you can, I don't think you can beat it. I've not I've not been to the Rockies in Colorado and all that sort of stuff to see, see mountains, but I've been to Bolivia and seen mountains and come down from five and a half thousand meters, and it's just been like. And did you have the chance to try the what is it, the cuisine there, Chifa? Yeah, yeah, it's but pretty, pretty terrible. Is it? Uh, it's terrible. It's Chinese restaurants, <laughs> and we had to. I had one in in Santiago, in uh, in Chile, and I, well, I was like, I'm desperate for some Chinese food, and you just don't. Uh, you, you forget how easy it is to have really good Asian food in Sydney and Australia. Yeah. It's just everywhere. Yeah. And it's not just really like nasty stuff. It's really, it can be really, really quite good. Yeah. So going there and I was like, okay, cool. We're going to have some spring rolls and some fried rice and some couple of staples and maybe a, some roast duck. And what came out, I was just, well, my girlfriend and I were just like, you cannot be serious. This duck tastes like it's cat. Like yeah, it's right. Five days old. Yeah, right. It looks like a duck breast, but it's no longer a duck breast at all. And yeah. some just some really terrible fried rice, really horrible spring rolls, most of it. Okay, but it was busy. Yeah, okay. and I was like, because they also have the Nikkei there, the the Japanese Peruvian, cuisine. much better. Yeah, okay. don't know why. It's just like you walk in and you can get some really really amazing Japanese food. Yeah, through Peru. Yeah, it's but and yeah. Peruvian food. I really liked it. Yeah. I really liked it. It's pretty simple. Yep. But it was it was it was, like you got to remember how high it is. Yeah, you know what I mean. So a little, little, there's a lot of tubers and rhizomes and rice and that sort of stuff that they grow up that that sort of altitude. Wheat and all that sort of stuff which is up there. But you realise quickly if you if you don't like corn, then you're not <laughs> you're in the wrong country. Yeah, right. Because there's a lot of corn. There's a lot of tamales everywhere. And and black coffee. That's that's pretty much breakfast every single day. Yeah, right. But it's 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 a cool place. I'd love to go back. On the next episode. It's one of the things, it's a really good therapy that a lot of young kids don't do now, and that's after work, go for the beer after work. Mm. And I think it's really important because it, it, it makes you understand that whatever happened during service tonight, whether I yelled at you and screamed at you because you shit and you're, you weren't organised and you, were, you know everything was undercooked or overcooked or whatever else, yeah. or the function was terrible or this was, you know, you sit down together, you don't separate. 
Yeah. Sit down together and you work it out and you go, blah, blah, and you share a few beers. Yeah. And the next day is a new day. Yeah. And you don't carry it on with you and go, okay, look, look, you know what? Because that's back you've, there in you've the You've dealt past. with it. You know. Dealt with it the past, let's never make it happen again. Yeah. All right, high five, cool, let's go. And you build this really, really amazing strong team. And so I think when I left in 2001, it was just like, it was just such a strong, strong team at Rockwell that it was just it was unbeatable. You know what I mean? Like people that were there were just absolute weapons. Yeah. This was a Life in the Past podcast brought to you by Hunter Street Hospitality, recorded by me, Jeremy Fennick, edited by Dan Parfit, and produced by Life in the Past.